0: Hey everybody and welcome to the show. Can't wait to share today's episode with all of you. So, Some exciting news. The Enrollify team and myself are on a leadership retreat, and what we're going to be doing over the next couple days is talking about new ideas for how to expand Enrollify, how to increase the content value that we produce for you all. We're going to be talking about new partnership opportunities, et cetera. Very, very, very exciting stuff. Can't wait to share all of our learnings and insights and takeaways with all of you over the coming weeks and months. Lots of exciting things in store. So what we're gonna do is since I will be out this uh this week, we are going to take a break from my normal podcast programming and actually share an awesome episode that is an interview that I did with Elizabeth Johnson, who is the co-founder and chairman at Simpson Scarborough a couple of weeks ago. And this episode actually published on Starter Stories, which is another Enrollify podcast. If you are not subscribed to Starter Stories, you really should be. This segment is all about the greatest uh, ed tech founders and education consultancy founders. It's just a really remarkable show that really dives deep into the story behind some of the most successful education companies that you all probably have worked with before and or know of or at the very least have heard of, so Elizabeth Johnson shares a remarkable story about how she grew up, uh, the founding of Simpson Scarborough. She was at uh, Carnegie before Carnegie was Carnegie Dartlet for many many years, the COO. She talks about this serendipitous conversation that ended up inspiring the founding of her market research and branding firm. Uh, Simpson Scarborough is one of the most prestigious uh, marketing and Branding firms that serves higher ed. I'm sure most of you guys have heard of them, but if you haven't, this story is just so compelling. It's uh, so raw, so honest. I, one of one of the favorite conversations, the favorite interviews um, I've, I've ever had, I've ever done. So highly recommend tuning into this week's episode. Again, if you are not already subscribed to Starter Stories and or if you haven't subscribed to the Enrollify podcast, go ahead and click that follow button. Really, really, really helps. Go ahead and click on over to Starter Stories and check out all of, we've got like 13, 14 stories now of founders in the ed tech and ed consultancy space. And you know everyone just has a, a remarkable story where they talk about sort of the pain, the challenge, the problems, the opportunity, right? The adventure that have led them to where they are today. So check that out and enjoy this week's episode. Let me know uh, if you've got thoughts or comments on how we can continue to improve and rollify. And, uh, for those of you who only listen to the pod, we have a robust resource online full of videos and blogs and, uh, downloadable content and e-courses. So head on over to enrollify.org and make sure that you're subscribed so that you get content that isn't in just audio format. All right, guys. And that's all for me this week. Hope you guys enjoy this week's episode and we'll see you next week.
1: obviously the big O oh shit moment was, you know, March of 2020. You know, I mean, I don't know how anybody you've interviewed in the last year hasn't said that. I mean, I, there was, there was one all agency call that we did and I thought I was being really smart. I, I put my laptop way far away. I was like, I was like on the all agency call, you know, like this <laughs> way far back, you know, cause I, I didn't want anybody to be able to see me because we were talking, about, you know, what COVID was doing to our, you know, to our projections for the year. And I was sitting so far away from the computer because I literally couldn't stop crying.
0: Welcome to Starter Stories, a podcast that explores the stories behind the world's leading education technology companies and education consultancies and the people who created them. In each episode, you'll hear about the grit, the strategies, the wins, the failures, and the serendipity that transpired to take a half-baked idea and bring it to life. Starter Stories is a podcast of Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher education marketers. Explore our other shows like Fanatical Fridays and CRM Prov, or access creative ideas on how to better your student recruitment campaigns via our videos, blogs, and e-courses at enrollify.org. I'm your host, Zach Cruz. Enjoy the show. In just a minute, you'll meet Elizabeth Johnson, co-founder and chairman at Simpson Scarborough, one of the leading market research, branding, and design firms serving higher education today. In her senior year of high school, Elizabeth thought she'd go and study psychology in college. But after a conversation with her father, who was footing the bill, she learned that she had two different major options before her, either pre-med or mathematics. And while she chose the latter, her favorite college course was actually an art history class. After graduating, she went to work at a small market research firm before joining Carnegie Communications, now Carnegie Dartlet, where she worked for 10 years and served as COO until she received a phone call that would change her life forever. Christopher Simpson, the former vice president and spokesman for Indiana University, who had been in charge of handling Bob Knight's departure as a Hoosier back in 2000, asked Elizabeth to lunch to discuss an idea he had. That idea would lead to the founding of Simpson Scarborough. She didn't know it at the time, but just a few months after the company was founded, Christopher received a terminal cancer diagnosis. Tune in to hear the inspiring, challenging, and remarkable story of the birth and the growth of Simpson Scarborough. So Elizabeth, I'm curious, do you remember what the first job you ever wanted to have was? And do you remember specifically what it was about that job that was so interesting to you?
1: Yes, I absolutely do. I wanted more than anything to be a pediatrician. And it's probably, I mean, I love kids and love babies, that's the number one reason, and um, like I'm one of those weirdos who had my kids named by the time I was like 14. I knew exactly what my kids' names were going to be. Wow! And um, I know, so kind of kind of a freak.
0: And we're, sorry, um, real, real but, fast uh, on that. Were were all of them named what you had predicted that they would be named? No. No, I actually I one of them. One of them got the
1: name that I decided.
0: My daughter's name is Savannah
1: and I I knew that I wanted to that to be my daughter's name forever. My son is named Griffin and uh so that that came later, but but yeah, I was one of those weirdos who did that kind of thing and um I also think it's because I was really really sick as a kid. Um, I was really, really sickly and skinny and, you know, people would stop my mom on the street and and ask her, like, if I had cancer, I was like just so sickly and skinny. And so I was in and out of the doctor's office all the time. So I think I was just sort of exposed to doctors and really wanted to, you know, work with kids. But the bad thing was I went into undergrad as a pre-med major. And one of the first classes you have to take is zoology. Well, I got a D in that, so that's <laughs> sort of, <laughs> I, I decided then and there that was probably not going to work out, and that's where I, uh, it was not a good sign, so had to change my major.
0: Wow, okay, and backing <laughs> up just a little bit, if, if you don't mind, uh, were you, did you have some sort of autoimmune disorder, or...
1: I had kidney infections. Okay. I was like in and out of the hospital with kidney infections. I mean, I would have to go in for like, you know, several weeks at a time and live in the hospital. It was awful. And it, I remember the doctor saying that I would eventually just grow out of it. And by the time I hit like sixth or seventh grade, I just never had one again and I'm perfectly healthy and have been ever since. So it's just sort of a weird I don't know. I don't I really I need to go back and figure out what that was all about. Yeah. Yeah. That... <laughs> but it they disappeared.
0: Yeah. And that must have been a, a really like interesting growing up sort of with, um, with these challenges and just this, this cadence of life that I would imagine it was quite different than that of your peers. It must've been like hard socially in school. And I mean, how, how would you explain your absence for, you know, days or or weeks at a time? What, what did your friends in, in grade school think about what was going on with you?
1: You know, thank goodness little kids just don't, you know, whatever you're experiencing is your normal so for me, I didn't really even know that it was not normal. Um, never remember having to explain anything. Um, and it was just, it was just sort of the way I live my life. But what I really think about now, I mean, you know, now of course I have kids, I'm a parent and I I think about my parents. I mean, if my, if I had a child who was in and out of the hospital constantly, I'd be a crazy woman. I'd be, you know, in a total state of panic at all times. So I really, I, I, it makes me think about them more than it makes me think about myself, you know, and how they, they dealt with it all and stayed sane through it all. But Everything ended up fine, so I haven't really thought about it for a while.
0: Wow, wow. Well, good, good. I'm glad to hear. So you <laughs> went into college, and you were pre-med. You flunked, almost flunked, about flunked zoology. <laughs> um, wh- at what point in time did you decide to change your major? Was it pretty instant, instantaneously, and, and and what did you move towards?
1: Well, it was funny. I remember I have a great story about this. So I remember coming home at the end of my sophomore year and sitting down with my dad, And um, my dad has a PhD in something called operations research, which is you've probably never heard of most people haven't it's a very sort of narrowly defined discipline, but he's basically a mathematician, I mean he's like Mm -hmm. a he's like a he's like a crazy genius. And I remember sitting down with him and, and uh, saying, Dad, I'm so excited. I figured out what I want to get my degree in. I just can't wait to tell you. It's, I really feel passionate about it. I'm just so excited to, you know, to share this with you and talk with you about it. And he's like, all right, lay it on me. And I said, psychology. <laughs> so of course you could hear a pin drop right I mean this is how you this is how you raised kids in the 80s right um you could hear a pin drop he paused for a long time and he said well that's great honey um who's gonna pay for it and I was like w- what do you mean who's gonna pay for it I thought you were paying for it you know and he says no I don't think I want to pay for that and he said what else are you good at And I kind of, you know, sheepishly said, well, I'm good at math. And he was like, all right, well, I'll pay for that. That I'll pay for that. (laughs) I'm I kid you not. That is the exact conversation I had with my with my dad. And it's exactly why I became a math major. And so but here's the interesting thing. I minored in psychology. Don't let all the psychologists out there get mad at me. I minored in psychology. And now I study consumer behavior. Essentially, that's what I do. So I study with numbers, people's psychological behavior so i i feel like i pulled these two disciplines together in a way that was really just perfect for me in the end
0: very very tactful love it um and and it makes a lot of sense uh, i'm curious so growing up who were your childhood heroes like who did you look up to it could be you know the local fireman down the street right it could be a celebrity when you think back to maybe like uh grade school and starting out in, in seventh grade middle school here, like who were who were the influences in your life that you really respected?
1: I mean, this is such a, a deep question, because it's very revealing. Um, so my childhood heroes were people like Nadia Comaneci and Mary Lou Ratten. I don't know if you know who they are. I
0: don't actually. So <laughs> please enlighten me.
1: <laughs> they're both um, gymnasts. So Nadia Comaneci got one of the first perfect 10s uh in the olympics and and mary lou Retton, of course had a famous um vault that she did where she got a perfect 10. and so i was way big into gymnastics as a kid um transitioned that into cheerleading and this is one of my other little dirty secrets is that um i was actually a cheerleader in college wow so you know those you know those. You know, had, uh, my partner was a guy. You know, there were six girls, six guys, and you know the stunting and all that stuff. So, you know, if you were a gymnast, that's really who they wanted to to be on the um, on the cheerleading team. So I was I was really really into that stuff when I was a kid, and uh, and I actually think it's funny because like anybody who knows me, it does not surprise them that I was a cheerleader. You know, because that's <laughs> that's like it's so my personality. Like I that's what I do in my company now. I mean, I'm like the company cheerleader. I've always been. Just very excited about what I'm doing, um, cheering other people on, trying to get them excited about it, and sharing that passion. So um, it sounds a little cheesy, but that's the that's the god's honest truth. It was, I mean, Nadia Comaneci was it for me. That was she was she was the goal.
0: Did you have any aspirations to to be a professional athlete? Like, was that was that ever on the table? Did you think was that a dream at some point?
1: No, I was way too tall. Um, I didn't have the right body type for it. I mean, you know, if you play basketball or football or you swim or you run, or you're a gymnast, you have to have a certain body type. And so yeah. I just didn't have the right body type to even, you know, make it even through high school. But, um, uh, you know, but that's okay. I, you know, I, those were still the, the, you know, the women that I looked up to. And it's funny. Cause when you said childhood heroes, I mean, I, I immediately thought of those two women. I wow. didn't, you know, there weren't any men that were called to mind. It was those, those two gals.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So in college, what, What did you do for fun? Like what were some of your extracurricular activities? You know, not necessarily social fun. Um, Although if you if you want to enlighten us uh, on on what that part of your life looked like, that'd be awesome as well. But in, in terms of just like extracurriculars, your free time, what were the sort of things that you were interested in outside of your math major?
1: yeah well i mean i was you know freshman year at least was was always at cheerleading practice six days a week for three hours a night and that's then, true that, that is somewhat,
0: uh, somewhat time consuming
1: <laughs> no, no time for anything else but then it was sorority after that And then I started to, it was funny, you know, I I really started to get into the arts and it, and, you know, this is a good story. So, uh, so I was a math major and, you know, as part of the core curriculum, you have to take a couple of arts classes. And I was like, not having it, right. I was like, once I got into math and, you know, really got into my lane, I was like, why do I have to go take a class in like art or music or something lame like that? Right. I mean, I, I literally had wrote a letter and, and met with the Dean um, at my school to try to petition against having to take an art class. And, uh, cause I, you know, first of all, I was convinced that they were going to ask me to like either draw something or compose something or be creative in some way that I'm just am not. I mean, you know, I think of myself as a very creative person now because I, I feel like I tell stories with numbers, but back then I was thinking of artsy art, you know, that what, what artsy art meant to me. And I just did not want to take an art class. So of course I lost that argument and I did have to take an art class. And, You know, and now it's my when I look back on my college education, the class I took in art history was absolutely by a magnitude of 10, my favorite class I ever took in college. So, you know, oh, absolutely. And why, why,
0: why, why do you think that was?
1: It just exposed me to something that I didn't know anything about, which is what higher education is all about. Right. I was totally rejecting, you know, this broad, you know, liberal education. I wanted to just get in my lane and stay there. Um, And if, you know, the powers that be won. And thank God, because I I loved that class. I remember and I remember walking through the National Gallery in, in Washington, D.C., and there's, a, there's an artist called Giacometti and he did this sculpture called The Walking Man. And, uh, and I had written an essay about Giacometti's Walking Man in this art history class and had no idea that it was at the National Gallery in DC where I'm from. But, but I remember walking by and there's The Walking Man standing right there by the escalator as I walked through the art gallery and just, you know, just having exposure to that and knowing it and recognizing it. I just remember being shocked and so excited to get to to see it in person. So, um, so I, so I, that was, that was, that was a a really good uh, experience. And, and, and I think, I think back to that now, you know, I mean, I, Hmm. I have, uh, I have four kids in college right now and, uh, and, and three of them are at liberal arts colleges um, just because I believe so fervently in getting that broad, broad-based, you know, liberal education. And so, you know, that, that story about the art history class probably had a lot to do with it.
0: That's awesome. I, I love that. That's a, that's a fantastic story. I'm curious when <laughs> you um, you've touched on this a little bit, right. With your dad saying, Hey, not sure that I want to fund you to go to college to study psychology um, I'm, I was, you know, he was okay with pre-med, he was okay with math, mathematics, um, not so much psychology, but w- what were some of the other, if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, some of the other ways in which success was sort of characterized for you growing up? Like, was there um. an expectation that you, clearly an expectation that you, you know, do well in school, that you study a, in a particular lane, but uh, what did your parents do? How, how, how was success talked about at home?
1: Oh, it was not, it was, it, there was, there was no lack of clarity around this. Okay. Um, success and yeah, success in my growing growing up household was all about grades. And so it was great because grades were, grades were the ticket to everything that you wanted to do in, in my house. Right. I mean, if you had all A's and B's, C's were not allowed. Like that was, if you got the C on your report card in my family and a couple of us did from time to time, um, my mom would put you in what we called the dog house. Um, which all that meant was is that you had to do more dishes and more vacuuming and more laundry and more yard work and more washing the car or whatever tickled her fancy about what you had to clean for that week or that (laughs) month. And so there were, there was no groundings. There was no, you can't go out for a month or anything like that, but there was just meanness and negativity and housework. If you, if you had anything other than A's and B's, if you did have A's and B's, you got the car, you got Mm. to go out with your friends, you got to have sleepovers, you got to go to sleepovers. So It was, it was really, it was all about grades. And then the other thing is, is that the other rule in my growing up household was honesty. Oh man, I don't know if people can relate to this. And maybe this is, this is just showing my age, but if you were caught lying in my household, that was it. It was like, you were going to get destroyed. I mean, it was the doghouse of the doghouse for the liars. I mean, it was really, really bad. And I'm, I'm so happy about that because, um, because you know, you know, it's, it's just, it's, I literally get like a sick feeling in my stomach if I'm even telling a white lie. And I really, I I love that, you know, because it just helps you live uh, an honest life. You can't have good relationships with people if you're lying to them.
0: Wow. I, I love that a lot. That, good lessons, good lessons. Um, and I'm curious when you, uh, when you thought about sort of a career right at this, at this particular juncture, let's say, let's even say in like in Mm -hmm. high school, um, you obviously thought you might be a pediatrician. Uh, was there anything else Mm -hmm. like on the table? Like, did you, did you at all consider Like, was there a a wild dream of, Oh wow. You know, I'll, I'll be a pediatrician, but it would be really cool to do X, Y, or Z.
1: You know what the funny thing is is no, I mean I I I'm I'm it's interesting because I'm more of a nose to the grindstone kind of a person rather than a big picture dreamer right? And it, it's funny because I'm married to a big picture dreamer. So my husband, you know, will sit down with our kids now and he'll say, you know, to one of our daughters, well, what is your long-term plan? Where do you see yourself at age 30 and age 40 and age 50? You know, and I'm like, dude, I, I didn't have any clue when I was even two weeks before I was graduating from college, I had no idea what I was going to do. Right. But I started a job on the Monday after Saturday graduation, mm. you know, I had it worked out. Right. And so I don't even, I never really did that. I never really looked. Out ahead. And, and, and it's funny because I, for better or for worse, um, I run my business the same way. I mean, it's, I don't know if you know the, uh, do you know, Sarah Blakely, the, the, she's the owner of Spanx. Yes. She started yes. Spanx.
0: I've, I've seen that, that viral video, uh, that maybe came out about a year or two years ago where she told a little bit of her story. Um, so I've seen that video, but out, outside of that, I don't know too much about her.
1: I relate to her so completely and totally because she's like a no business plan type of a, of an entrepreneur. And that's exactly how I am. She's, she's like business plan. Screw that. You don't need a business plan. Just get your ass to work, go sell something, go make something, go do something, you know, and that is very much how I am. Just put one foot in front of the other and keep working hard, 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 hard until you get somewhere. Right. And so, so no, I didn't really have any aspirations to do anything. I never really had any aspirations to start a company. You know, I never, I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur or or even a CEO. I just worked my ass off. That's what I did. And I still do just every day, get up and just work really, really hard. And I'm I'm lucky. I love what I do. So it makes that easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's gold. I I do. I want to press in on this a little bit because one of the things that uh, I'm always curious when I meet people who have founded companies, who are uh, the CEOs of companies, and they sort of—they're they're not sort of the thirty-thousand-foot visionary, like five-year plan, ten-year plan sort of characters, because you know there's there's a lot of those that fall into sort of the the entrepreneur uh, lane. And, um, I, I'm, what I'm most interested in is how do you, or how have you been able to successfully sort of communicate some direction to your team? Like while you might not need it, right. Or while you might be able to show up, work really hard and, um, understand, you know what, it, it's about focusing on this thing for today and then I'll tackle tomorrow's problems tomorrow and yeah. eventually I'll get somewhere. Right. And I think that that works really well as an individual, depending on sort of like how you're self-motivated. Right. But. I, I wonder like how, how does that translate to your team? Like when as you're leading people, yeah. some people do need clarity and context and vision. So can you just share a little bit on 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 that and how you've been able to sort of like straddle the the pressure of not being too planned, um showing up, tackling the problem at hand while simultaneously ensuring that people understand roughly where you're going?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So so I've never had a business plan, but I've always had uh uh, a very specific mission in mind, a vision for the company, um, very particular values and a very intentional culture for the kind of company mm. that I wanted to have. And that we have all of that on paper and we talk about it all the time, right? Um, I mean, and even having, you know, uh, language that you use to talk about what you're trying to do. Um, you know, like we in, in, at Simpson Scarborough, we we always talk about building brands because we that's what we do is build brands. And, and we talk about building brands that both inspire and endure. And and that may sound like a catchphrase to you, but our entire business process is built around ensuring that that happens. I mean, mm-hmm. we do our work in a particular way because we're trying to build brands that inspire and endure. And so there's a, there's a framework there that, that guides all of our major business decisions and all of our minor business decisions, right? And then the same thing is true about culture. I mean, you know anybody who works in a in a consulting firm, your culture is just it's everything yeah. it's how you attract people it's how you retain you know good people um and and that is something your culture is not accidental right it does not have it your culture is not built organically right it's built very very intentionally and so thinking about um, you know the kind of company that you want to have. It affects everything. It affects how you know what tools you use to you know for to um, have your team communicate with each other. It affects um, you know the choices you make about the types of business that you will and will not go after. I mean, you know, so 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 yeah. No, I, you know, I would say no to the traditional business plan that I was actually taught to write in business school because I have an MBA too, and so I learned all that right. And uh, and I know the way people say it's supposed to work. I know the textbook approach. Um, I, so I, I've never done that as far as the business plan goes. But mission, vision, values, culture, all of that, those things, those elements in our company are very well documented, and we look at them all the time.
0: We'll jump right back into the show after a quick message from this week's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Verity. Verity just launched their brand new student information system called Verity Student, Verity Student is everything you wish you had in your student information system and then some. Verity Student combines top-notch, unparalleled compliance and efficiency-boosting processes with the best communication features built into one single platform. Verity Student streamlines academic tracking, document management with an electronic signature, and a built-in powerful contact center with multi-channel communication. The unfortunate complications that human errors prevent are virtually eliminated with their improved process workflow automation that paves the way for data and reporting that you can actually count on. It's the most efficient recruiting, enrollment, and retention process that you have ever seen. Get more than you have with less strain on your budget with Verity Student. Experience the cost efficiencies that their all-inclusive tool provides compared to other, more expensive tools with less functionality. The unified pricing includes a multi-channel communication hub at a fraction of the amount that you'd pay for multiple systems. Say goodbye to inefficiency. Say goodbye to disjointed communications. Say goodbye to Excel when you say hello to Verity Student. At Verity, they only know one direction and one speed. Always forward and always fast. Harness the power of one with Verity Student. Request a behind-the-scenes look at their new student information system, Verity Student, at meetverity.com. Again, that's meetverity.com. I feel like the temptation for for a lot of folks is to uh, focus first and foremost on the business plan and then sort of figure out those other things as as you need to. And in a world to like the world we're living in today where things are changing so rapidly, and even sort of like in any sort of digital marketing, any sort of brand space, the rate of change, you know, because of the internet is just so freaking rapid that you yeah. know, a, a lot of the time your business plan halfway through the year, halfway through the three years, five years, it, it all goes out the door anyways. And yet your culture, your mission, your values, those need to be the constants. And I I you know, it, yeah. it's it's tempting to sort of put those things in the category of like luxury goods. Like, yeah, mm. you know, we'll have a conversation about culture at some point, right. Once we figure out the business plan. Um, and yeah. yet in, in all actuality, those things don't get enough time and attention and, and the love that they need to, to really grow so that, you know, when you do need a, when, when you are in a situation where you have to adapt, the people that you're surrounded yourself, you you've surrounded yourself with, uh, are open to adapting because they, tr- because right. trust is sort of the foundation of, of the culture that you've built. Um, no doubt. So I love that. No doubt, and it,
1: it it's also about sort of it, related to that is is sort of the conversation about what's your why? You know, like why do you do what you do? Yeah. And 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 that's a conversation that we have all the time because and that I love to have because I I I really you know, you know you could say oh well gosh you know we you know we we do marketing for higher education you know we help colleges recruit students and raise money. I don't see it that way. I mean I you know I I really believe. That higher education, American higher education in particular, changes the world. I mean, who 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 found that? Who developed the vaccine for COVID? Right? I mean, people who attended our universities, right? Um, who does all of that research? Who's going to save the planet and end extreme poverty and you know uh, and address these public health health issues? It's it's American colleges and universities in particular, yeah. I believe, that make a huge difference in this world, and we play one little tiny piece in supporting them. Right and helping them thrive and and that means something to me. I love this industry, you know, and I think it would be. I think I would have a much. Uh, I, I I don't I don't know if I would feel as passionate about what I do if I was, you know, not to be mean, but like selling toothpaste or something, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I I really have have a lot of pride in in being able to contribute to the arena of higher education because I just believe it's it's essential, you know, yeah. it's gonna higher education is going to end racism, right. Mm. Or, or, or chip away at it forever. Right. And, you know, so all of these, you know, societal um, impacts of, of higher education are, you know, that's, that's our why, right. Is contributing to, to, to helping higher ed have the impact that we all know it can have.
0: Perfect. We're, we're touching on sort of the, the why, uh, why you're here now, right. Why you're in higher ed, why you've, you've built this, this remarkable company. I want to go back a little bit and talk about the job that you started uh, on the Monday after uh, graduation. What was that job, um, and can you just give us sort of an overview of what the first few years of your your professional life looked like?
1: Yeah. So this will be consistent with what I've already told you. So, um, so by the time I got to my senior year in college, I had I had taken every math course that I needed except maybe one. And um, and so I had a bunch of, you know, slots in my schedule to fill. And so I walked over to the business school and started taking things like, you know, management 101, econ 101. So I'm the only senior with all the freshmen, you know, (laughs) business majors. I literally filled my schedule. I graduated with graduated with way more credits than I needed. I I think I needed to take only two classes my my senior year spring semester. But I had a full load of 15 um, because I found the business school and loved it. And it was funny, I was sitting in a market research class. This is, you know, like a month before graduation, sitting in a market research class. And uh, and a, a woman who worked for a tiny little company called CERR in Washington, D.C., they had five employees total, came in to talk about the market research that they did for colleges and universities. Huh. And I'm sitting there, right, with my math degree and all my recent business classes thinking, this is my dream job, like I want to work for this company so bad. so I go up to my professor after the uh after the this guest lecture from this this woman who was a former student of his. So I go up to the professor. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Dr. Tier, I, who is, I, I really want to work for this company. He's like, why are you talking to me? Go talk to
0: yeah, her. Yeah, get right? out of so, the hallway. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. So I literally chase her out there and and just beg her. I'm like, I, I love what you do. I, I mean, I must have sounded like a complete and total idiot. But but uh, she said, she said, Elizabeth, I'm really sorry. But, um, you know, our company is five people. You know, we haven't hired anybody in 10 years. um, And so it's just like, I'm just trying to be honest with you. It's probably not going to happen. I mean, we're just a really, really tiny group. Um, But thanks for your interest. Right. Um, And I'm like, oh, you know, so I send her an email, you know, in brand new email. Email was like brand new back then. That's how old I am. And uh, just to follow up and say, thank you. I thought that was so interesting. And two weeks later, she calls me up and she says, you're never going to guess what just happened. Someone just quit.
0: No way. No (laughs) way. Someone just
1: quit. I swear. And then so literally I'm going up, you know, to interview for this job, you know, the week before graduation um, got it and started, you know, graduated on a Saturday, started on a Monday and the rest is history. And I had the best experience there. I had a great mentor. Um, his name was Ted Kelly. He's, he's, he's passed away now, but he was just, he was wonderful to me. Um, you know, took me around to college campuses all over the country. I worked as an analyst for them. And, uh, and it was just, it was the best first job out of college anybody could ever hope for.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Uh, what a <laughs> fantastic story. you're just you're just full of great stories. I love it. Um, so, okay, you're there for what? A, f- a few years and then and then what happens? Where do you go next? And
1: well, well, then I found my next me- mentor. His name is Joe Moore, uh, and he it was Carnegie Communications back then. It's now Carnegie Dartlet. Um, but he found me and hired me to start uh, Carnegie's research division. It was me uh, and a half time researcher. Um, starting the division, and when I left, we had about 25 employees, and we're doing about six million in in revenue. Um, uh, uh, several years later, right before I started my own company, so he gave me a real shot, and I he was a really good teacher um, and mentor to me today. That I I've, I've just always appreciated that experience so much.
0: Were there a a couple of lessons in particular that you feel like you learned during your your time at Carnegie that have stuck with you to this day?
1: I mean, so many, I mean, he, you know, Joe taught me how to sell that's what he taught me. I mean, he really taught me how to, um, you know, connect with people um, and 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 market a set of services because he was so good at. Um, but the other thing I learned from both my first job and my second job was that I did not want to work for a family-owned business. Both of the first companies, CERR and Carnegie Communications, were family-run businesses. Hmm. and um, And my last name was not the same last name as the business owners. And so, you know, so that's where uh, starting my own business came in, right? Because I knew I would never, you know, if you're in a family run business and you're not a family member, you know, you're kind of, you hit a ceiling. Doesn't matter what gender you are. It's not, you know, the glass ceiling. It's just, it's, you, you, you know, you don't have the right last name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and it's funny, be, but be, because of that, I've I've always had a no friends and family policy in terms of hiring. I've never hired a family member. Uh, one time, one time I broke my rule and I hired um, the older brother of my daughter's best friend. Hmm. You know, for for like, and I hired him as an intern. So it was kind of like you know, that's okay. Right. Just to hire him as an intern, but then he was so good. We hired and brought him on full time. And uh, so that's the only time, one time in 30 years that I've I've broken the no friends and family rule. But I I, I think it's an important one. Like my, I will, this company will never be run by my kids. Never. I mean, I'm not, you know, you just can't do that to your, to your employees. And, you know, I, I felt the limitations of that. And so I just don't want to do it to anybody on my team.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a really, really interesting one. And I'm curious when you think about, the, I guess, the legacy, right, that, that you do want to, I mean, we've got a lot of, of, still sort of like dive into here about the the actual story. And we'll get to that in, in a second here. But in light of that, right, like a lot of, a lot of companies do, right, want to leave their, excuse me, a lot of founders, a lot of, a lot of CEOs do want to leave, right, the company to their children or to their families. So like, as you think about the legacy that you want to leave one day, what does that look like? If if it doesn't look like handing over the keys to, you know, one of your kids. To Savannah. <laughs> to Savannah. To Savannah.
1: Yeah. No, not doing that. Well, you know, one of the reasons just, to, this isn't even answering the question that you asked, but I'll, I'll answer that in a second. But you know, I want my kids to find what they love. You yeah. know, I don't want them, I want them to go out and do their own thing and figure out what, what they love. I want them to be as happy with their career as I've been with mine. Um, and I don't necessarily, if, if, you know, I just don't think that means following in my footsteps, you know, I want them to flex their own muscles and, you know, find their own way. So that's, that's another, I, in my, everybody has a different parenting sure. style, but that's, that's sort of my parenting philosophy. But, um, but the legacy of the company, honestly, as I just think is um, the people and the impact, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I may not have any family members in my company um, by, by blood or by marriage, but I feel like this is a family. I yeah. mean, I, I just... I just cannot I, it's 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 one of the best things about running a company is feeling such intense pride um about the people that you work with. I mean I'm I'm literally like an hour off of a meeting where um I I just introduced eight of my people um to to make a presentation to uh to a client and and you know I just get to sit there and beam And be in awe of this group of people. I mean, it's just it's so I I just draw an enormous amount of of pride in in the people that I work with. And if if there's any legacy, it's just. you know, giving people really interesting work to do, um, and, and creating an environment where they can just absolutely enjoy themselves doing it, you know, mm-hmm. in addition to, of course, the impact that we're having for our clients. I mean, that's, that's that, you know, that's a, a huge part of it as well. It's, there's nothing more gratifying than making a difference for a client. I mean, it's just the best part of what we do.
0: Yeah. Especially when your, your clients are higher education institutions, um, uh, they have a huge bearing on, on the world as you've, as you've already sort of outlined for us. So you are, you left Carnegie when you were, you were COO, if, I was. if your LinkedIn serves me correctly. Okay, great. Um, and talk to us about the events that led to, you know, you leaving and deciding to go off on your own. Uh, I'm sure that was a, yeah. a scary decision for many reasons, but I'm always curious to hear about like the months, maybe it was years uh, sort of leading up to the decision to, to go pursue your own thing.
1: It wasn't months. It wasn't years. It was more like minutes.
0: Wow. Okay. Ooh, good. <laughs> so, Tell me.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, so, so, uh, so here's the way it happened. I was, one of my clients was Indiana university. And when I worked at Carnegie and uh, my, my client there was Christopher Simpson and he was chief of staff to miles brand at the time, who was the the president of the university. And uh, so he, he was my client and we became good friends and he, he got all tied up in the Bobby Knight scandal. Oh, I don't know if you know when, yes, yes. Remember when Bobby Knight sort of, you know, a, allegedly, I'm not sure what the official word is, but allegedly strangled the kid. I mean, there's yep. video, right. Yep. You know, all ended up on ESPN and, and, uh, and so, you know, Bobby Knight left IU and um, Christopher was, you know, part of the team that sort of was involved in leading to uh Bobby Knight's departure, right? Um, And Bobby was obviously, you know, beloved in Indiana. I mean, Hoosiers went crazy for him, right? And so Christopher wasn't that popular at Indiana after (laughs) Bobby Knight was moved out. And uh, so he went off to start his own consulting firm. And we were still friends, he did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then, you know, we just sort of stayed in touch because we were friends. And and one day he called me up and he lived in Williamsburg, Virginia. And he knew that my parents lived outside of Richmond, Virginia. And he said, hey, the next time you come down to visit your parents, why don't you and I get together? Let's just talk. And uh, I was like, okay, what about? And he was like, well, I got a, I got a, I got a business idea I want to talk about with you. Hmm. And I was like, okay, whatever. You know, I was so happy with Joe and with Carnegie. I loved my company. I thought I'm going to retire from Carnegie. This is, I'm going to be here forever. But, but I, next time I went down to see my parents right outside of Richmond, I met up with Christopher at the airport and, you know, Christopher was an old journalist, right? He used to work for the Washington times. And so he always had one of those yellow legal pads,
0: you know, and he'd write
1: on it with his handwritten notes, you know, he'd furiously write stuff down. And so I sat down with him and for two hours he's flipping through his little notebook, you know, showing making all these notes, writing things down, writing ideas and numbers. And, you know, he's got this idea for starting our company. And uh I I was, you know, on the way out the door to go meet with Christopher, I remember saying to my dad, like, oh, you know, this guy is a friend of mine, he, you know, wants me to go into business with him, but it's I'm never gonna do it. It's not gonna happen, you know. And and uh, but I go meet with Christopher for two hours, drive back to my parents' house, walked in the door and said, I'm starting
0: a company. Wow. That was it. No way. That was it. It was that quick.
1: It was that quick. So what was it? What was it
0: about the plan or the like, what, what, like how do you go from walking into a meeting with no intention of doing anything to a couple hours later and a few flips of yellow paper, you decide to quite literally alter your life.
1: You are asking that question because you never met Christopher Simpson. Okay. <laughs> is, okay, I have not. He yet. was, <laughs> he, was a, he was a force to be reckoned with. This no one said no to this man. I mean, you couldn't. You couldn't, we were, that's why we were such a good match. He was so excited and had thought it through. He, he was, uh, I mean, he just said to me, he said, Elizabeth, we need to do this. This, the the higher education needs this business and you are the key ingredient that's going to make it happen. Hmm. You know, so it's kind of hard, like, you know, I'm the key ingredient, right? I'm like, Ooh,
0: you know, he needs me. Right. So the recipe will not come out right without you. Yeah, (laughs)
1: exactly. I mean, I fell for it hook, line and sinker, you know? And uh, and so I I don't know. There's just some there there are those moments in your career where you got to just jump, you know, I mean, and that was mine. I'll, I'll tell you about another one later. But, you know, meeting meeting, you know, going into business with Christopher was the best decision I ever made. He the relationship that I had with him was the best professional relationship I've ever had with anyone ever. I mean, he wow. was just, he was electric, you know? And so I just knew, I knew in my gut it was a total risk. I, you know, I knew that. Um, but I knew enough people in higher ed to know that if it didn't work, if it crashed and burned, I could find a job somewhere yeah. else, right? It's yeah. not like I was going to be jobless forever. Um, the job market was great back then. It was, you know, it was uh, before the crash um, in in, uh, in 2008. So I just dove in. I didn't even think about it. And that was, that was probably in, uh, November and we launched the company the following February. Wow. That's so quick. Okay. No business plan.
0: No business plan. 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 (laughs) Okay. Okay. What about, what about roles? Like did you guys, how did you, how did you decide or or was it sort of like classic startup? Like everyone kind of does everything or, or did you guys go into sort of the launch with at least a rough understanding of the stuff you would take care of and the stuff you would take care of?
1: Yeah, we, we did. We did. I mean, he was, he was, I've written about this. He was like Donnie and Marie. He was a little bit crisis communications and media relations. And I was a little bit market research and branding. Okay. Right. And so we knew we, but we knew that these things uh, would feed each other and work together. Right. We knew he would have clients. I would have clients. We would have clients together. Right. Because sometimes clients needed both. And, and, uh, and because he had been um, consulting for the past couple of years, he already had some clients, right. That we just rolled into the new business. Sure. And, sure. Uh, You know, like like one of those was the University of Colorado. We were working with uh, with the University of Colorado back then, and they were going through multiple scandals at the time. Um, One related to their football team, one related to a professor. I mean, they were in the Chronicle every day. They were in the national media. They were in The Washington Post and The New York Times because of all this stuff that was going on that I don't even want to dredge up. But um, but but it was a great sort of first you know, project to work on because it was such a disaster. I mean, it was just such a shit show, right? So there was so much to fix, and and uh, and and it was a great sort of birth by fire experience because, like, I remember, I remember going into a University of Colorado uh, board meeting and having to go through a picket line. There were like protesters. Oh
0: my god, with
1: with like you know signs and you know all kinds of stuff, and having to go through and having and then even inside the boardroom, which was a public meeting. Right, that was yeah. televised, and there's reporters behind me and protesters as I'm trying to deliver research findings to the board. I mean, it was you know it doesn't get more stressful than that, you know. So we, we just had some really really interesting uh, projects at the beginning that that were um, intimidating uh, but exciting and invigorating, yeah. and and it just took off immediately. The company just took off. We, I mean, within six months we were we were we were profitable.
0: Wow, that's super super <laughs> impressive. And so, at what point? did team member number three come along
1: pretty quick um and and it's interesting because team number three still works for
0: us really oh that's awesome
1: yes yes and
0: who is who is give him a shout out
1: it's funny it's meredith simpson no relation to christopher simpson wow no everybody always thought that she was his daughter she's not she wasn't she you know but um but we brought her on as a as a research analyst and and now she's our vp of research And I just couldn't be happier, could not be happier. She's, she's incredibly talented and smart and I'm just so thankful she's still with us.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. And what, and was that in 2000, early 2000s that, uh, that she came on board or.
1: We started the company in 2006. Okay. And this is where things get a little, a little deep Zach. But, Mm -hmm. um, so we started the company in February of 2006 in november of 2006 so you know just nine months later christopher and i were we 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 met with a camp somebody on a campus and then went to get uh, a bite to eat for lunch afterward and christopher's sitting there during lunch with me he's wearing a suit you know with his white shirt and his tie and he pulls down the the collar of his white shirt And he says, Hey Elizabeth, what do you, what do you think this is right here on my neck? This is kind of weird, isn't it? Uh. And it was a, it was a bigger than a quarter sized black mark on his neck that was raised. Wow. And I just looked at him and my stomach fell out of my body. I mean, it was just, I was like, Christopher, what the hell? I mean, that, if you haven't had that checked and, um, it was, he went in to have it checked and we found out that he, it was melanoma and he had cancer in 17 places in his body from his ankle to his brainstem. Oh my God. This is nine months after we started the company. And so, you know, in, in this, let me give you a direct quote from Christopher. He, I remember him saying to me, well, it is in 17 places, but the only ones they're really worried about are my liver and my brainstem. (laughs) The other ones. (laughs) Wow the other 15, no big deal. They can knock those out. Wow. You know, that's, that's the kind of person he was. That's, he was wow. just the eternal optimist. Um, but, um, he spent the next year and a half, about year and a half, um, attempting all kinds of experimental treatments. I mean, just, you know, there was, there was one time, um, during the summer of 2007, that he called me up and he said, he said, all right, listen, I'm going to go into NIH on a Thursday night and um, they're going to shoot me up with all this stuff um, and until I almost die and then they're going to stop. And that'll be sometime on Friday. And then I'll have to spend the weekend in the hospital and I'll be back at work on Monday.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. What and a I was force. Like,
1: yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? And, you know, and, you know, of course his wife calls me on that Friday and she says um, Christopher's in a coma and they don't know when he'll be out. He was in a coma for a month. Oh my! And God. so he, yeah. So we're, our company's, you know, a year and a half old and um, you know, I've got to immediately jump in. He's got, you know, 20 clients he's working with and I've got to call them and tell them, I'm sorry, but he's, you know, Christopher's in a coma and I, I'm going to help you with your project. I mean, it was just, it was totally devastating. I, I can't even tell you, it was just heartbreaking, devastating, you know, personally, professionally, in every possible way you can imagine. And um, and he passed away uh, in February of 2008. So right about the second anniversary of the company. Um, and, it, you know, people always ask me, you know, why are you named Simpson Scarborough? I don't even know if you know this. So, you know, I'm the Scarborough. Yes. My name's Elizabeth. I, I, yeah. I, I, mean, I be, mean,
0: because of your LinkedIn, that's that's the only, <laughs> exactly. I, I figured, I figured, yes.
1: If there's any young female entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, don't name a company after yourself. If you think you might get divorced and remarried, Bad <laughs> idea, you know, so that's my advice for you, you know, take it or leave it. But yeah, I mean, I didn't even think for a second, Christopher and I spent about 10 seconds thinking about what we should name the company. He's like, Hey, so what should we name it? And I was like, I don't know. Well, you're Simpson. I'm Scarborough. How about Simpson Scarborough? He's like, great. That sounds good. Let's do it. You know, like that's, that's the way that he operated. It. Oh, it was, all, I loved that about him. I just love that about him. He was so fast. He taught me to hustle, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, before I met Christopher, I was a methodical, thorough, and I still have that aspect of what I do, especially as a researcher, right? You're careful, methodical, you double check, you know, check, you triple check, you quadruple check, you know? And and, uh, but he added in this component of, of speed and quickness and responsiveness that is just serving. I love that combination. And I, I learned that from him and I, it's the reason I will never take his name out of the company. You know, wow. people ask me that right after he passed, well, what, you know, how can Simpson Scarborough go on if there's no Simpson? I was like, oh no, he's here. He's here. He will always be here. Um, he's, 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 has always been, and will always be a part of what we do. So I just, I, I cherish Christopher. I just, I absolutely cherish him. He, he really gave me this, this whole chapter in, in my career and I'm eternally in his debt.
0: Wow. That is, that's quite the story. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have so many questions, but I guess the, the most immediate <laughs> one, um, that comes to mind is I I'm sure, right. It's February, 2008, Christopher passes away <laughs> You must be. I mean, what, was, there, was there ever doubt? Was there ever like, well, screw this? Like, uh, no way, Jose. Like, uh, let's shut this you know puppy down and I'm going to go back and, and get a job where I am not trying to build a startup from the ground up where my partner is, is, is no longer with me. Like, what, what was running through your mind in the spring of 2008? And how the heck did you muster up the courage to continue on?
1: You just, you just, it, it, I absolutely thought maybe I'll just open a little antique shop somewhere, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, you just feel lost. I mean, I totally felt lost. I mean, you know, I, I Meredith Simpson was sitting with me, um, right next to me at Christopher's funeral. And yeah, you just feel like in a fog, you know, Mm. like what the hell am I going to do next? Right. What, what in the world am I going to do next? Um, not to mention the fact that, that, that the recession right is already on the horizon at that point right like you're you're it's like watching a slow train wreck right like you know it's coming and um so I was like panicking for for multiple reasons but I told you before I'm a nose to the grindstone person I think I wallowed for like half a second and then I just firmly placed my nose back on the grindstone and worked my butt off hard 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 and 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 it's interesting because You know, the recession did hit, but it did, you know, it had a lag effect on a lot of companies. You know, like it really hit us like late, like fourth quarter 2008, first quarter 2009. I remember calling my accountant and uh, I was like, Michael, um," this is probably like March of 2009. I was like, Michael, you know, it's weird. Um, We haven't written a proposal for any colleges for about mm, two months and we haven't gotten any RFPs in about two months. And I'm starting to get a little worried. And he was like, uh, okay, let me call you back in an hour. So, I'm um, and so I'm kind of freaked out, right? he calls me back in an hour and he said, he said, all right, Elizabeth, I've looked at some of your numbers and, um, I'm going to make a series of recommendations to you right now. And I'll never forget. Cause it was like midday on a Friday. And, uh, and he, he, he listed off like 10 things that I needed to do, including laying, including laying people off, um you know cutting my own salary cutting other people's salary i mean all these really really hard things and so he he lists all these things 10 or 12 things that i'm supposed to do and i said i'm listening you know and then i finally said okay michael i understand what you're saying um i hear you and so i what i want to do is uh i'm gonna monitor things for the next two weeks and if things don't change then we're gonna start ticking these things off right we're just gonna do all of them we'll do all 12 uh you know if things don't get better in two weeks And you know what he said to me?
0: No. What did he say? What did he say?
1: He said, Elizabeth, I'm not talking about two weeks from now. I'm talking about by the end of the day.
0: Wow. Mic drop. By the end of the day. Mic drop. Wow.
1: Yeah. My chin, the mic, everything. Me out of my chair. I mean, you know, I was just, you know, I had to lay someone off that Friday who had started on Monday. Five days after they start. I mean, it was the worst. It was just the worst. I mean, you know, not that it, it doesn't compare to COVID, but it was so now, now that COVID has happened, it's the second worst, but, but those are just the great, you know, especially if you're, you know, running a company or an entrepreneur, you know, those are the things that you look back on and just think, oh my God, that's, that was, that just made us stronger. You know, it's just going through those hard moments, just, you know, uh, they just prepare you for all the other hard moments that are going to come in the future. So you kind of are, you're almost thankful for them, you know, once they're so far past that you can laugh about them, you know, wasn't laughing at the time. Um, but, but now it just feels like a, just a healthy, you know, part of the cycle of running a business.
0: So I want to, I want to hear a few more vignettes of, Simpson Scarborough over the years so a couple of you know two three whatever comes to mind of of stories or just um seasons or moments that you think sort of stand out as milestones or um a, a particular moment that you hope one day right when somebody is telling the story of this this great company that you've built um you hope that these things like make it into the story, right. As, as yeah. key bullet points, like what are from 2008 to today, 2021, right. Uh, what are a few of those?
1: Well, the biggest one is, uh, Jason, our current CEO. I mean, that's the absolute biggest one. It's funny. Cause like I had this great partnership with Christopher and, and knew it, you know, knew that it was, priceless this relationship that I had with him. We were so symbiotic. I knew what a great partner, what it felt like to have a great, great partner who, um, you know, just felt completely in sync with not that we were similar or always agreed, because we definitely did not. We were very different. We disagreed all the time, but we had this like healthy mojo of working together. So so once I lost Christopher, then it's like, I just want it back, you know? Yeah. I, and you're just like scouring the universe. Like I just want, I want that back again. And, um, and it wasn't until sort of almost, you know, 2012 or 13 or so that I met Jason, he was working for the University of California system,
0: um,
1: ran, ran marketing for the whole system, all 10 campuses. So super tied up, you know, with the chancellor of the system, um, worked with all the different campuses on, you know, marketing initiatives and PR and all kinds of stuff. And I knew almost almost instantly. Like I, maybe that's the thread of this whole, you know, conversation that we're having right now is I'm, I'm definitely go with your gut Mm. kind of a person. I, it's like, when you feel something, you've got to jump on it. And um, so I started talking with Jason about coming to Simpson Scarborough uh, pretty soon after we met and started working together and, um, and, you know, finally got him to come over and, and join me and, and be my business partner. Um, around 2014 or 15, we talked about it for a while and, you know, had to find the right time for him to exit the University of California. But, but that's the, you know, that that's, that's the start of the current chapter. um, Because, uh, because Jason's, you know, I've had so many more years with him than I did with Christopher. And it's just another one of those relationships where he and I even all the time, we'll be on a call together and we'll step back and be like, man, we, it's weird how well we work together. You know, it's like we're finishing it. You know, it's like weird, you know, we're such good friends. We enjoy each other so much. He totally 100% compliments my weaknesses, um, which I think is just so important. You know, if, if you're in any sort of a leadership position, right, is to not act like you're perfect and not to think you're good at everything. I mean, there is some stuff I'm really, really bad at. And thank God I found a partner who's really, really good at the things I'm really, really bad at. And so, you know, it's just—it's just a—it's just, a, it's just a, a, you know, the another relationship I'm just so so thankful for. And I—I I literally, uh, there's probably not a day that goes by that I just don't marvel at him at how well he is at at, at running our company now. Because of course, I made him CEO, um, just about a year and a half ago, right right before COVID hit. Wow. And I thought, oh, this is great. Yeah. He's the CEO now, and I can just relax, right? I don't even have to think about anything. And then COVID hits, you know, and just when I think I'm out you know, I get sucked back in, you know, which of course I love, but, uh, but it it wasn't exactly the, you know, the transition I thought it would, would be, but he, I I really have ever since I put him in charge, I've just never even, you know, second guessed it for a second. He's just been, been awesome. So that's, that's the big, that's the big, big milestone that led our company to where it is today.
0: Did you, did you decide you needed a co-pilot that you needed a partner and then go on this like massive journey to find one or was it a little bit more organic you you stumbled upon jason and you thought to yourself oh my gosh i have to work with this person i i I gotta convince him to come over right like what what was what did the path look like
1: it's interesting. It's such a great question. I, I, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I knew I wanted a partner. I knew I, I knew I needed some, I knew I needed a Jason. I just didn't know it was Jason. And so I didn't systematically go, I knew I was looking for someone, but I was waiting for them to reveal themselves to me. Hmm. And so it was, so it was years. I mean, I probably looked for, you know, four years or so, you know, after I really, really consciously decided that I, that I needed a new partner. So, um, and then he just, you know, he walked into my life and I knew instantly it was him.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm always curious, um, especially for folks who found companies and they they lead the companies for for years, sometimes even a couple of decades, and then they sort of decide to bring a partner on or bring somebody to, you know, basically hire a CEO. And I'm always curious to hear how how that works, because I would imagine that while there's you know lots of great upside to that, it's also incredibly challenging for the person who you know birthed the company to (laughs) let go and let and let somebody else um take the steering wheel um yeah so what what was that I guess are there a couple of of stories uh maybe even just a story that comes to mind where you had to wrestle with that or has it been Mm -hmm. a lot easier than you had expected it would be
1: it's a it's a little bit of Both I would have to say. So, you know, so my historical specialty is in market research, right? I mean, that was, you know, that was, that's what I have always done. It's, it's sort of where my, my, uh, you know, my original roots are. And so, you know, market research, especially after Christopher passed, because when Christopher passed, I, you know, like I, I remember learning in business school that you can't run a company, um, that does something that you don't understand, you know? Mm. And I, I really did. I was not, Christopher was crisis communications and media relations. That is not my area of specialty. So I had to, when he passed, I had to reorient the company around what I do, which is a market research and brand strategy. So, yeah. so I, I sort of, you know, cut that whole part of the business loose because i didn't understand it um and i didn't think i could i could do a good job of 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 running that part of the business i'm i'm now i'm sorry i did that but that's you know that's water under the bridge but but um so i sort of reoriented the company around what i did and um i totally forget how that's related to the question that you asked but but when i brought jason in i actually didn't bring him in to to be the ceo i just brought him in to be my business partner i okay. was just really i just i'm i'm just a you know i i needed someone to you know, to 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 have different opinions than, than me. I yeah. don't know everything. I mean, I just needed someone to bounce my ideas off of and to add something. I mean, we are, you know, we are definitely greater than the sum of our parts when, when, when you put us together. We, you know, what we've been able to do together is far better than what I would have been able to do on my own. Um, and I don't know if he'd say the same thing. I hope he would, but I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have to ask him in another podcast, but... But uh, but but so so the great thing about about him is that I didn't necessarily bring him in to be the CEO, but he just grew up into that. And it was such a natural transition um, for him to take that over. And, you know, I will admit, you know, the places where he's really strong is um, mentoring and growing uh, team members, um, whereas I'm better as the cheerleader. Right. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, to me, everyone in my mind is awesome. Like, I just think they're always doing a good job. And, and I like to be out with clients, networking with clients. And, um, but, but, but Jason is just so good at organizing the team, mentoring Mm. the team, training the team, giving people, you know, new opportunities. And so I, I, it's just the role he's played in doing that has just been so essential to our growth. I can't even, can't even, you know, put a value on it. It's, it's, it's priceless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sounds like a a dynamic duo for sure. Um, so you've touched on several of these moments, uh, which I call "oh shit" moments, um, and it's one of my favorite <laughs> questions to ask folks in this in this podcast series because uh, you, you always get sort of like a raw, sort of vulnerable answer from folks. And um, if if you know if people aren't comfortable sharing uh, organically in with with you know sharing organic answers to some of my questions, they they tend to always be able to share something super raw uh, in response to this question. Um, but so I'm going to frame it a little bit differently for you since you've, you've been so uh, kind to, to share very vulnerably, um, about your, your story. Um, can you walk us through a, oh shit moment that happened in the past two years? So not, not going back to, to the beginning, but, um, and I mean, two, three, four, whatever, but like in, in relatively recent history, uh what was a no shit moment uh where you thought something maybe a project was was on fire maybe it was in you know uh team management related maybe it was even just personal of you know i i don't know if i want to do this anymore um and and how did you sort of like emerge from that moment uh and and ultimately triumph through it yeah that was oh a gosh. very long well, question so i apologize for, no. the, for the wording is there
1: no, it's a good question. It's a good question. So, I mean, you know, I think I, I, I don't really have a lot. I do. I'm going to share with you a no shit moment because there's a big one in the last year, but, um, but they're not, I, I can't my o oh moments are not necessarily project related, but I'll, I'll tell you why that is, is that I think it's really, and this is maybe a good advice for people who are sort of, you know, running a business is that um, a great way to avoid o oh moments is to not take work you're not capable of doing. Mm. You know, that's such, a, that's such a hard thing for a, any business owner, especially if you're just starting out. I mean, you want to take every piece of business that's even remotely related to what you do. You know, like we can do it. We'll just figure it out as we go, you know, and you have to be really, it's really hard to say, that project's not right for us or we're not right for that project, Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be for any reason, but you've really like, that's one of the things that we've really learned to do well is to not necessarily go after every single little tiny piece of business we could possibly ever chase, but instead to be really thoughtful about where we can really succeed. If you do that, you're not, you're, you're lowering the chances of the oh shit moment, right? Yeah, Cause the yeah. oh shit moment happens when you're out on a limb or you're stretching to try to serve a client, you know, in the way that they need to be served. I mean, I can just, I can tell you just on Tuesday of this week, I had to um, call a client that we've been talking with for two months um, and say, this is not, we're not the right partner. We're not the right partner and it sucks and you hate it. And you don't want to say that ever, but when it's true and you're being honest with yourself, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta do that so that you just never have the O oh ship moment. So, so most of ours are not necessarily, you know, project related with a sure. client, but, but obviously the big O oh moment was, you know, March of 2020, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't know how anybody you've interviewed in the last year hasn't said that, I mean, I, there was, there was one all agency call that we did and I thought I was being really smart. I, I put my laptop way far away. I was like, I was like on the all agency call, you know, like this (laughs) (laughs) way far back, you know? Cause I, I didn't want anybody to be able to see me because we were talking about, you know, what COVID was doing to our, you know, to our projections for the year. I mean, you know, I I think anybody who runs a a company at that point was thinking, you know, we're not going to make it through the year, you know, like that, that, You know, that was the worry. And I I was sitting so far away from the computer because I literally couldn't stop crying. Mm. And, and I, I, you know, I had to be on the call. It's an all agency call. Everybody's there. We're, 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 we're telling people we are already feeling the effects of this. It's, it's going to be bad. We're warning you it's going to be bad. We're, we're telling you we're going to be honest with you every single step of the way about what's going on, you know, with the business. And, you know, because it never ended up happening. But I, you know, at that point, I thought, you know, we're working for 45 different colleges right now. These, the, our phone's going to start ringing and all these projects are going to get canceled. They're yeah. all going to be put, you know, I, yeah. I, we didn't know, you know, turns out only two clients did that and, you know, wow. and they kicked off, you know, and they, the projects came back six months later, but, you know, but that was the fear at that point And we were trying to prepare for it, you know, and prepare our people for it. So, I mean, I was, I was literally bawling the whole call, which I don't do. I, I'm a, there's no crying in baseball kind of a part, like there's no crying in the office, right? Like don't if anybody even comes into my office and is crying, I'm like, okay, we're gonna end this meeting now, you're gonna get yourself together, And we're gonna talk about this in a couple of days, right? Like I don't I don't do crying. And so I thought I was being so smart sitting way far away from the computer, but I found out later everybody knew I was crying. Uh-huh. Everybody was crying because I was crying.
0: Oh uh, no. The worst. <laughs> it was uh-huh. it
1: was a shit show. It was terrible. It was really bad, you know. And and of course, you know, none of my worst nightmares actually came true, you know, but um, but at that point, you just didn't, we just didn't know, you know, yeah. we didn't know what was going to happen. And you, you know, you sit there thinking, this is how I'm going to lose my company because of this pandemic, you know, like nothing that I can control, nothing that I can influence, you know, but I I did. There was a, there was a very brief period of time where I thought that that was what was going to happen and we were going to close or something, you know, yeah. and thank goodness it it never came came
0: around well that's a big one that's that's a big one that's that's a good one that's a good one (laughs) so i i have a couple a couple final questions for you i could pick your brain all day but i i do want to respect your time and one one of the questions as i was prepping for our conversation today um that i was particularly interested in, in hearing your response to is um, it 's not every day right that you talk to somebody who has successfully built a consulting services firm that has you know stood uh, at least a couple decades worth of time right um and and you know you I, i'm curious for for young entrepreneurs who might you know be thinking about their careers might be tired of working at the services firm that they 're at right now, maybe they think that they could go and launch their own consulting service um, and, you know, maybe they're interested in, in getting on into sort of like the product side of things and have this idea for a new software company that they want to start. Uh, I, I do think that there's a pretty like uh, significant difference between right starting a Consumer focused business, starting a you know uh, software focused business, and then starting a services focused business. And so, I have had the privilege of interviewing lots of folks in the software and sort of like product land, but not as many people in in the services land. And so, I'm curious mm-hmm. if you had to give a framework or even just some tidbits of advice to folks that want to build successful, thriving consultancies, what advice would you give them?
1: I love that question. It so uh the first is you have to love what you're doing. Like if you're starting a consulting business, make make sure that you're consulting on something that you absolutely love, that you have just an an innate interest in and then and an insatiable appetite for learning more about, right? Um, uh, because that that's just that's just a like a foundation. It's like flour in the bread, Mm. right? Has to be there or it's not gonna be bread, right? So so you have to have that. But then the next thing is I think the next thing. If I had to really think about, uh, you know, one of the, the, the other key ingredients to our success, it would really be the connections and the networking. I mean, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell talks about being a connector.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. You know, that is so like, you know, and, and, and you really, sh- I don't even think you should be a consultant unless you're sort of innately a connector right? Because you're not going to get business if you don't, if you're not a networker and connector, you know, and and then you're not going to be a good connector unless you really enjoy meeting and talking to new people, yeah. you know, and, and, and all your, you know, friends. I mean, I, it's funny because like, I, I, you know, all my, I really feel like, like my best friends, um, half of my best friends, you know, outside of the, you know, the people that I know through, you know, high school and college, my best friends are the people that I work with, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't know if that is that good or bad. I'm not really sure. But, um, but, you know, when I think of, you know, Tony Proudfoot and Terry Flannery and Heather Swain and, you know, just all these, these, you know, people that I've met throughout my career, I just... I really adore these people. And it's so there's, you know, networking with, with, with people like that and building those relationships is just absolutely essential. I mean, now, you know, we're, we joke with people all the time. We're like one degree of separation from almost everybody working in marketing and higher ed, right? Like if, like if I don't know him Jason knows him or Jason knows somebody who knows him and you know so it's so that you know that's the way you sort of you know build a successful consulting business because everything is based on referrals right i mean yep. everything you know if and and people you know that's the way you build the the brand awareness of your of your own company so i think you know just when when because pe- people call me all the time and say oh you know i want to leave xyz university and i want to do some consulting and i'm like well great start making phone calls mm. you know just start making phone calls talk to anybody who will talk to you, you know, do an informational interview, make friends, connect other people with each other, you know, like, oh, I know somebody who could help you with that. Let me, you know, connect you guys. I mean, it's just, that's just, I think that's, that's really important. And, um, and, and, and is the, probably the easiest pathway to success in a, in a, in the services business. But, you know, the other thing is, is if you're consulting with your, um, if you're consulting with clients, the other thing that I've, I, I, I learned through the years and wish I learned earlier is, is to be brutally honest with your clients, mm. you know, which is, is hard. It it's harder than it sounds, but to really be brutally, you know, you're, that's what your clients are hiring you for. And I, I don't think I really learned that until I was, you know, probably in my late thirties, early forties. And I wish I learned it maybe a decade before that. Um, Cause once I started really just like not filtering what I say, barely at all. um, That's when I started to really feel good about the work I was doing. You know, so if someone would say like, you know, what do you think about our website? Or what do you think about this strategy we're implementing? If I thought it sucked, I'd say so. I'd say that sucks. You're doing that wrong. You know, that needs to be fixed. And, you know, Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the person that you say that to is is saying you're right. Yeah. And it does suck. Yeah. You, how do we fix it? You know, and so you you know just being being just being brutally brutally honest. If you're being a consultant, that's what people are hiring you for. You know, and so if you try to soft pedal and make everything sound you know like it's like it's not broken when it is, then you're not going to get very far.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you're, as you're talking, one of the things that comes to mind too is, is also helping people understand like whether something's a, a marketing challenge or it's the product challenge or a brand challenge, right? Like you've got, especially in higher ed, sometimes you've got people in leadership that, that believe that their program or programs are the best thing since sliced bread and in all actuality, like they're not. And so oh. we can, you <laughs> you can market the hell out of them. And yeah, you, we could, we could see some, you know, lifts in, in apps and, and enrolled students here, but like a 30% increase in enrollment for this program which the product in and of itself is not very attractive like get out of here and yet the temptation it's just so hard especially like in the sales process to be like yeah uh, no like your product like sorry, honey, it's, it's, it's not worth this. Um, like yeah. these, these expectations are ridiculous. Sorry, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. You
1: get, yeah, you get to the point where like, you know, you're working for a small private liberal arts college, right. Who, you know, all they want to do is sell the whole category, not their whole, not their yep. own institution. Yep. Right. So you go to a small liberal arts college and you start asking people, what is it that makes this place so great compared to small liberal arts college, you know, 15 miles away. And they say, well, you know, it's really the personal attention. It's, you know, our, our small professors class and sizes. students have, yeah, have really great relationships, you know, and the background in your mind, you're thinking bullshit, right? You know, like that's heard it yesterday, heard it yesterday, heard it the day before. Right. And you got to like, not, that's what I'm saying. Just not filter that stuff and just say, yeah, I heard that two days ago when I was down at XYZ other college, right. You got to go deeper. You got to go further, you know, or or if we can't articulate this, then, you know, we got a bigger problem, you know, so it's, it's, it is that kind of thing, you know, just, just being, you know, really, really honest so that you can actually make a difference.
0: My last question for you um, is around starting another business. So if you were to start another business, inside or outside of higher ed, higher ed consulting, anything that you're doing now, is there something that comes to mind of, huh, I think it could be interesting to do that, or, huh, here's a problem that I would like to put my brain on and and try to tackle or try to solve do you have any sort of idea for what you in the context of starting and or helping uh, lead another venture might look like? I
1: do, but it would not be a business. It would be an association. Ooh. Because there is no association that truly serves the needs of higher ed CMOs. There just isn't there's no association that serves them in the way that admissions people have NACGAC, business officers have NACUBO, presidents have uh, ACE, board members have AGB, right? Advancement people have CASE chief marketing officers, people working in marketing and communications and higher ed don't have an association that serves them well. It is such a huge, it, it, it makes me angry Hmm. that there's no association and, you know, you know, we're a for-profit company, so we, we can't do it. Um, But, 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 you know, if there, if, if I were going to start another chapter, if I were going to turn the page and start another chapter, it would be to, to, to I, I, you know, I don't know crap about start, you know, the association world, which is why I haven't acted on this yet. But it really, really frustrates me that, that there isn't an association that is really providing the kinds of networking, obviously, opportunities that I think are so important, um, collecting the kind of like benchmarking content that other, um, uh, you know, cabinet level professionals have access to, um, you know, creating the professional development. Uh, opportunities, the resources, I mean, you know, I mean, ACE provides an essential resource for college presidents, you yeah. know, and all the other cabinet members, they, you know, the, the NASPA, the student affairs people have NASPA, right. I mean, everybody has their association, but the chief marketing officer is the newest person at the cabinet level table. It's the biggest change in the higher ed administration of the last decade, and they don't have a support system in place. And I, I just think that that's um, is so necessary. So We'll see. We've joked that it should be um, it should be the um, uh, the Association of Higher Ed Marketers, and so the acronym would be M.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. So, that's good.
1: Which I think is great. It's like, like you that. know, it, get people's attention. That's yeah. what marketers want, right? M. Yeah. Welcome to the 2021 M conference.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fun. Oh, you could do a lot with that. Ah, uh, that's great. Uh, well, Elizabeth, this has been uh, incredible. I've learned so much and uh, have really, <clears throat> excuse me, just appreciated your your time and sharing your story with me and helping uh, our listeners better understand the Simpson Scarborough story. I, I think that there's um, just so so many layers to to what you guys have built, what you're building. Um, lots lots to come I'm sure as you guys think about the next few years and would love to have maybe a part two where we talk a little bit more about like I know that you don't have a business plan um, but as you, <laughs> as you think through like the next few years like yeah what do, what do things look like uh, what are what are areas categories things that you guys might want to explore etc but um just very appreciative of the the legacy that you have built uh you all have obviously a phenomenal reputation in the industry and that doesn't come easily so that comes through a lot of grit lots and lots of hard work so thank you for being here and and thank you for for the work that you do if folks want to get in touch to follow you to connect with you to learn more about simpson scarborough services what's the best way for them to do so
1: oh my gosh we make it really hard for people to find us (laughs) simpsonscarborough.com. My email is esj at simpsonscarborough.com. We're all over LinkedIn and Twitter, and we are not hard to find. So we'd love to hear from all of you. Thanks for the um, walk down memory lane, Zach. It's been really fun.
0: Of course. Of course. It's been an honor. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Starter Stories. Starter Stories is brought to you by Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher ed marketers. Enrollify was built to empower enrollment marketers with the ideas, the strategies, and the tools that they need to optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. You can explore our other podcasts or sign up for one of our newsletters, or watch an episode of Frideas, our weekly video segment, at enrollify.org. Oh, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button or leave us a review. And if you like what we're about, share this content with a friend. Finally, if you know a founder in the edtech or education consulting space that you think we should have on this show, please send me an email directly at zach, that's Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org.